Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome back to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I'm really excited to have a guest who has 25 years of management experience, often at the managing director level, now at senior vice president level, and she is coming from Singapore and I have turned the globe around in your honour, so it's facing towards Japan, Asia Pacific, China, Greater China, the areas that she looks after with her amazing organisation. And uh, it was Graham, uh, Graham Brown who recommended, said, look, this woman is amazing. She's very inspiring. And it's always, I love having guests who, who are recommended by everybody else. I, I, I don't think it's, it's as genuine when people say, I'm inspiring, have me on your show. It doesn't kind of work. So other people have to recommend them. And um, with that experience in her current organization and Telstra and Randstad as well, a lot of experience in tech companies, professional services, from startups to more mature companies. So without further ado, I'll hand over to her and she can explain who she is and what they do. Thank you, Jonathan. Gosh, that's a that's a very high bar, but appreciate the fact that you've got the world. We do see the world in a different place than if you live in the US or someone else. So hi, everyone. My name is Mariette Andries, uh, Dutch native. That's why the J is soft if you ever look me up on LinkedIn. Uh, and um, I work for a company called Red Hat. Now, this is the moment, because Jonathan has asked me to explain a little bit about the company that I work for. This is the moment that I thought, why didn't I ever join Unilever? And then I could just say, I work for Unilever <laughs> and uh, I'm responsible for the healthcare division because then everyone knows what I'm uh, I'm talking about, but no. So Red Hat is a, a very interesting company. We are the world's leading, I love going with that, the world's leading provider of enterprise open source software solutions. Now, I'm going to unpack that a little bit uh, because it's not body soap and it's definitely not shampoo. Uh, so first of all, what is open source? Open source software is where the soft, sorry, the source code, see I'm stumbling over my own words, the, the source code is designed so that it is publicly accessible. Now, for those of you who've been around a long time, we all grew up with Windows and, and other things. That was all proprietary software. It was locked behind a key. If anything needed to be changed, you had to pay, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Red Hat started about 30 years ago as an amazing startup. We're not a startup anymore. And we uh, we brought the world of open source a little bit more to the world than, than the rest. Um, and so what do we do? Uh, we deliver operating systems. That's what we started with. And I think most of you of the audience will have probably heard of Linux. That is our claim to fame. So Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And it's the operating system based on that open source where everyone can get access to the code um, that all the, we can say all, it's almost 100% of the Fortune 500 companies use. So uh, that is something that is very important to us. And we help companies on their digital transformation. So we'll probably might talk a little bit about more about that, but uh, that's the world that I'm in. So the challenge is always, how do you explain to your parents or someone else, what do you do? 
so I've I have some practice in this. <laughs> Those of you who've been reading the newspapers, uh, Red Hat was acquired by IBM three years ago, three and a half years ago. It was the largest software acquisition in the history. $34 billion for this lovely company that we call Red Hat. So that's us in a short Fantastic. Well, what a lovely connection as well, because um, before I, um, uh, I, I was I was in PricewaterhouseCoopers, I was in IBM, IBM bought PricewaterhouseCoopers, so I, I relate to that. Uh, and then I went to, uh, to Penna. Um, and so, yeah, I have uh, fond memories of my days in IBM, but I, I do love this whole idea of open source. And it fits very much with the concept that we have of CQ, collaboration quotient. Um, this idea of people from all over the world collaborating with each other and not being little Englanders or little Dutch people who just keep it all to themselves. But they go, look, here it all is, you yeah. know, build on it, develop it. And and I, I think it's a lovely it's a lovely concept, but actually to make it happen, that takes some real skills. So, you know, congratulations to to Red Hat for what they've done and what they're doing. Um, exciting times. No, I, I love it. So look, it's great to have you uh, on the series and uh, particularly when we're dealing with very complex businesses, technology, software, hardware, whatever it might be. Um, who are the men and women behind it? And so it's really a little bit uh, Maya, about about you. So perhaps uh, let's talk about leadership first, because leadership is something you've been involved in, as we've discussed earlier, for 25 years. If I talk about the word uh, inspiring leadership, it has a certain meaning for us in the concepts of it, which we're going to talk about. But but when you've worked for an inspiring leader, what is that man or woman? What are they like? What kind of behaviors do you notice in, in a, an inspiring leader for you? For me, for me and and. Gosh, we talk a lot about these and there's so many podcasts and articles on this that you sometimes like, oh, God, here we go again. And it's always the same words about authenticity and things like that. But then if you do ask me the question, it's the first thing that comes to mind. You want someone that is a real person. Um, and um, this is uh, this might come as uh, something that is a bit funny. So 25 years, right? I see it on my own LinkedIn profile, 25 years. I think it's the vanity of being a lady. I've actually been working for 31 years now. Um, so that kind of tells you my age. Uh, but when I started, leaders were like these unapproachable gods. Uh, and I think I'm, I'm very excited that that has changed. And I'm only happy that I think that 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 is something that inspires me. And I hope, you know, to give on the baton to the next generation uh, who are much more critical, you know, generation X and Y and whatever they're called. Uh, but being a real person at the, you know, those that those godlike people. And then in my days, it was usually usually there were only men. Um, it, it's like you would almost shiver when they would. You know, in the old days when you have these big buildings and you would get into the elevator and then, oh, lo and behold, he's with me in the elevator. And you would just cringe because you wouldn't know what to say. Not that you had to because they didn't speak with you anyways. And then the old days when they had their key to the elevator so that they could go in one in one go to their floor so that they, oh, my gosh, wouldn't have to speak with the normal people. And I think, oh, we've come so far. But, yeah, being a real person, being authentic uh being straight being fair being honest those are things that are inspirational for me and we talked about humor yeah humor is one of them too 
yeah. got, a, got a little bit humor around there. Well, it's so interesting. You've triggered for me uh, lift images in my mind of the people I've been in a lift with. And if I can, I so think you're spot on. If I compare the old guard with the, the younger generation of CEOs and senior leaders, it's completely different. So on the one hand, we have sort of Field Marshal the Lord Inge, who sadly passed away a, a few weeks ago. But he put the fear of God into me when I was his assistant, when he was head of the army and sitting in a, a limousine with him going to the airport. I just was in fear of my life. And this person, he would, you know, haven't you done this? And why not that? And we had a flight to to Zimbabwe. And, and I thought, great, we're, we're traveling first class, the head of the army and his assistant. And, and you know, he would keep me on my toes throughout the flight. I was trying to reach for the champagne glass. Go, Have you done this, Jonathan? Do that. And I was just living. My, my, my heart rate was always so high. And, and just there was there was no no realness, no humanity. There was this mask of command, this fearsome person. And then I compare it to um, Philippa Snare, who's the senior vice president in uh, Trade Desk, which is a really, she was in Facebook and Microsoft and she's now in Trade Desk. And she's very much like you. She's very personable. And um, she, she said, I'd rather have a hole than an a-hole. Uh, in, in other words, if she's, she, if she's got a really bad person, she'd rather have a gap and wait for someone good rather than get the wrong person. But that kind of frankness, that kind of honesty and openness is great. And also then Matt Oppenheimer, who's the CEO of Remitly. And Matt's the most personal kind of guy. He'll chat to anybody at any level. He's very personal. He talks about his openness, about his vulnerability. That's inspiring leadership for me, not this fearsome, bullying, kind of scary kind of leader. Yeah. Um, so it, it is, you know, Digressing on that, it is interesting though that I think in the the western part of the hemisphere we we have moved on from that, but in the Asian world we still see a lot of that kind of control and command uh, leadership styles. If you look at countries like Japan or China or Korea, and this is where it comes interesting: how do we how does the East meet the West? Because you know we like to think of ourselves as global globalized, globalized leaders, globalized citizens, but yet there is still a lot of difference in what works and what doesn't. So, you know, I don't know if I have the answer right here, because that's probably going to be your question, but um, do you adapt or do you not adapt? And, and, and where do you keep your own leadership style in check? I think that was the, that has and still will be my biggest challenge on this journey that I am you know, working in all these different countries and continents and cultures, where do you stay true to yourself? But where do you also, you also have to be effective as a leader, right? You can't mm. just, uh, you know, this is me. Uh, there is some adaptability or agility that you have to have there. So fascinating. Yeah, you've touched on something very interesting with Xi Jinping and, and different leaders uh, around the world, whether it's Putin or whoever it might be, or in Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. That, that there's a very interesting book well worth reading or in my case as a dyslexic I listen to these books called mm -hmm. The Age of the Strongman by Gideon Rackman uh, yeah. The Age of the Strongman and, and in it he said you know there is this like Xi Jinping and others this fearsome command and control of the old guard that I was talking about where one man has control over everybody and 
puts themselves like uh, Erdogan in in uh, Turkey in power for years, you know, unlimited power, Orban, that kind of stuff in Hungary. And and so I think you're right. It Just as we're hoping that there will be more authenticity, more compassion, more gender neutral leadership, we're finding they're getting single strong men to run everything. And it's really a bit of, you know, and then you look at Trump and Boris Johnson. Oh, my goodness. You know, what's going on? But so that's it's a worrying trend in leadership. And that's certainly not inspiring leadership. It's it's uh, it's more the bullying male macho leadership. Um, so coming away from that to your life journey and and, and here you are. Uh, just like your Dutch forebears out in the in you know the whole area of China, Japan, and uh, you and I were having a good laugh about the Dutch East India Company and the British East India Company. Can't even say that without a drink, uh, and I'm not even drinking. I'm non-alcoholic. But um, there was such an interest in learning about countries. Okay, making m- making profit from trade. We're all doing trade these days. We're in the, the business of convincing and selling people to to buy things, but. You know, you've had a fascinating life from your upbringing in Holland and then all this 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 world travel. Tell us a bit about experiences, a few sort of key experiences in your life and how that shaped you as the leader you are today, Maya. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a long story, but so please uh, <laughs> jump in if it becomes a bit uh, too long. Uh, but yeah, Dutch, very Dutch um so out there so i come from a long-standing history of generations that have been abroad so you know growing up um we talked about all the countries in the world could be south africa south no not south africa but south america or it could be uh uh indonesia or india or anything so at our dinner table we ate different foods we we had you know the world was was our oyster so i grew up as an expat child i always start with that i'm a global citizen myself so it kind of gives you a, a very uh, different perspective and what it does uh, i lived in three continents i worked in two you learn at a very young age the power of diversity but also the complexity of differences and i think you learn very uh, young the the how to balance that if you're the new kid in the school on the school ground, you gotta adapt. And again, do you adapt by still staying yourself, or do you adapt all the way? Somewhere in the middle is always the best. But it gives you a completely different view of the world and of people and of what makes people a tick and what doesn't. Um, so that was my starting ground. Um, so then eventually, I did end up back in the Netherlands. I uh, went to university there. I did a master's in economics, which I also never heard myself say so much as when I joined Red Hat, because I'm the only non-engineer and I'm the CEO of the APAC company. So uh, everyone was very surprised, but it just goes to show that having all the knowledge, which is, I think, old fashioned way of thinking, having all the knowledge is not what you need when when you're a CEO. But anyway, that's a that's a bit of a sidestep. Um so having lived abroad, uh, then coming back to the Netherlands for my education, I started my working career. Um, and actually, if you look at my working career, uh, it had like four phases that I went through. Um, I wasn't the natural born leader uh, or the natural born person that you would see now. I was a bit shy. I was a bit timid. I struggled finding my voice. 
So when I coach uh, uh, young people, and it could be different backgrounds, could be different genders, I always say the first thing that you not got to do is you got to find your voice. And finding your voice is one thing. And that also means what are you good at? Um, some people are born to be a marketeer. Some people are born to be sales. But if you don't know and not a lot of do, you got to find it. And then you got to know how to use it going forward. So I would say that was that was a long phase um, that I went through. It took me a bit longer than uh, than uh, my uh, my peers. So while they were rising through the ranks, I just got, you know, passed over for promotion. Nobody ever believes me when I tell this story. They would say, oh, you must have been one of those people that just boom. I said, no way, Jose, it, um, you know, being insecure sometimes also is helpful. Um, but anyway, so th that was that was the first uh, phase. Once I found my path, and that was when um, I went into sales, um, which was interesting for my generation. Salespeople were uh, non-academics, um, older men. <laughs> yeah. That was that was it. You know, you could see it. You probably uh, um, kind of envisioned that. So there I was coming in uh, and always uh, surrounded by this this whole generation of old, old way of doing sales. But I quickly found out that my strategic thinking and, you know, my my gosh, the confidence and the fact that I, I understand a lot and I listen very well, I could solve a lot of complex situations for customers and then you're on your fast track in sales. It always was strategic sales. I was never good in, you know, the regional sales where you got to do high volumes. It was always very complicated. Um, and then, you know, you go from being the account manager, the junior rep to the account manager, to the sales manager, to the senior sales manager. And then you're all of a sudden you're, you're a sales director. Um, I love doing that journey. I always recommend it to people. It's good being, having been at the bottom somewhere um, I always argue, I have a few friends of mine that work for the prestigious consultancy firms, you know, the McKinsey's, the Bain's, the BCG's. And I always say, you guys were born telling other people what to do, but sometimes it helps being at the end of the food chain, you know, just being the the, the person that, that, that carries the boss's bag and has to make minutes and then get scolded at because the minutes aren't right and things like that. It's very helpful. I, I, I thought it was a very exciting time in 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 my career but um and then i thought i want to do something else then i switched careers so i went from the telco industry i went to the hr services industry uh with a wonderful company called randstad and i went from being manager of the year i always say to being not the manager of the year and what it learned is that you got to stress test your management style because if you stay in the same industry and if you stay in the same company, you will perfect that, you know, to the last mile, to the last minute. And it works because you know exactly which buttons to push. You know exactly what to do. If you go somewhere completely different, this was still in the same country. So it wasn't the cultural aspect. And then all of a sudden, other dynamics, other rules, other way of, of, of managing. And people look at you like, what the heck is this lady doing here? It's very humbling. And I always say, find a place in your career where you can stress test your management style and see what eventually, how you can round it out. Um, and yeah, that was um, that was humbling, like I just said, 
was it was great. I found my feet again. Uh, and then came the biggest shift that I said, all right, I've done this. Now I want to become a GM or a MD or a country manager, whichever word you like. So and I, I, wa I wanted to go abroad. Um, yeah, and that's different again, because you think you know everything when you're leading a business unit in a big company at the headquarters. You think you've got it all. But once you're out there, really out there on your own, you realize, and it doesn't matter if it's a big country or a small country, big operation, small operation, the buck stops with you. Mm. Nobody else. There's no one else. You can't, you know, you can't. <laughs> it's you for everything. And I remember there was a, a very, uh, very nice uh, boss that I had in those days. And I said, yeah, you know, I think this country is too small for me. You know, shouldn't I go to a larger operation? And he said, doesn't matter if it's strong or if it's big. Because going forward, you're going to have to get used to the fact that every 10 minutes of your day, you're going to be asked different questions. One will be, what's the, going to be the color of our logo? To you got a harassment case. To your, your profitability isn't where it needs to be. To you got to fire or hire people. And it's the constant rhythm that you have to go through that is something that you need to train your, your you got to train your brain. I always say your brain is a muscle. And you got to get that flexibility because once you really get the top jobs, that goes times 10 or 100 or X. Um, and either you like it or you don't. I loved it. I thrived in it. I thought it was it was an amazing thing to really have that that end opportunity. So, um, yeah. And then the next phase is obviously running a region as a CEO or MD. Uh, where it's not more about yourself, but it's about empowering and getting other leaders to step up and step in. And that's what I call true leadership. And it starts by saying, I don't know. And it doesn't start by saying, oh, I'll tell you what to do because I'm the boss. And I think the whole I don't know, it's such a empowering thing for yourself. So a little bit. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. And and so many things that um, uh, I want to build on because I, I love what you've said and the experience that you've had. First, let's, let's work backwards from I don't know. The best CEOs, MDs, um, you know, regional leaders I've come across, or leaders at any level, <clears throat> to have the vulnerability and the, hu the humility to say, I don't know, but I'll find someone who does. And be comfortable with that rather than thinking they have to be the answer man or the answer woman. And there's that excellent book uh, by David Marquet, who's a submarine commander who I had on the podcast called Turn the Ship Around and Leadership is Language. He does two, 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 two books. And in the little video he's got, which which uh, I recommend you and others listen to, it's called um, Greatness. It's on YouTube and got little cartoonists drawing things as he's talking. And it's really got masking tape over the leader's the leader's mouth. But the leader's saying, this is my intent. This is what I want overall strategically to happen. What's your intent to achieve mine? And then they've got 136 people thinking for themselves rather than, you know, what should we do? Everybody delegating up to Moyet. You know, what, what should I do? And and the other thing is in Red Hat or any other organization, what do you what do you make? Well, of course, many people say, oh, we, you know, we do software and open source. Well, actually, no, you make decisions and you make decisions every day. And I think you've made this point better than any other leader I've heard for a while about that. You know, every five minutes, you've got a different decision. Now, 
if you can get decisions made at a lower level, the smaller stuff, you make the decision. What do you think? So I often find people come to the leader and the leader goes, do this. Oh, do this, do this. And, and, they, go, and they, they bring something else. What should I do now? Do this. And that's, that's the wrong way. They go like, be a decision evaluator. Have a meeting once a month. Go, look, I trust you. You get on and do it. I'm ultimately accountable for everything. But let me coach you and mentor you so you can think for yourself. And yeah. this is this is the greatest thing. So I think that's a lovely one. I do love the one about McKinsey. In the, I was in PricewaterhouseCoopers myself uh, as a consultant. And uh, when we got bought by IBM and, and there is this tendency for people, you know, if you can do, if you can't teach, if you if you can do, if you can't become a consultant, of course, I was a consultant. And now here I am uh, coaching series. But luckily, I have been a managing director myself in a PLC for some years. So I know what it's like. And I've also been a leader in in, you know, on operations around the world in dodgy places like Bosnia and Northern Ireland. So I was under pressure and they're all looking at me. What do you do now, boss? And you go, oh, my God, someone could die if I don't make the right decision. Luckily, in your case, not many people hopefully are going to die. But I do think I do think this thing about having had a moment where you've had to be at the front end, at the at the combat end of making decisions day to day, which do affect men and women's lives. Uh, and then I love your earlier point about flexibility. I think this thing, as you moved around, it is fascinating the, the, the travels you had around the world and the conversations you had at the table, which allowed you to respect diversity and inclusion and different perspectives, uh, just even like spinning the globe and looking at something from a different angle, which people often do, is that, um, how, are you rigid to, this is how I am, and regardless of whoever I meet, I'm gonna be this way, or are you gonna, I'll be a complete chameleon and I will adapt to everybody I meet and give them the answer they want. And I think you're right, it's somewhere in the middle where you have very clear true north of your values, or as a friend in uh, Argentina said, we don't have true, we have the Southern Cross, you know, we don't have the following a true north star. So, so but, but you have a clear idea of what you will do and what you won't do. As Oscar Wilde said, uh, a lady or a gentleman is someone who knows what they will do as well as what they won't do. And, and I think that that point about being flexible enough that you're not so rigid that you like a, a metal bar, you snap, but you can bend like a like in the, like the old um, uh, palm tree in the storm. You can bend, right? Other trees just break off, but not uh, so flexible, not so flexible. That is, that is beautiful if I can jump in there because I like sharing this story. A lot of people always ask, who do you look up to? Who inspired you? And I always find that a bit of a difficult um, question because I don't see leaders uh, or people around me like, oh, that's it. I, I I think I'm a little bit, you know, I've got this little backpack on my back and I, I, I steal a little bit of here. I copy a little bit of that and, and shape that to be mine. So there's not just this one leader or this one book that did it. But th what was very fundamental for me is the upbringing that I got from my parents. And uh, I was a rebellious child, so I probably if you would have asked this to me in my 20s or 30s, I would have said, oh, my God, not my parents. But now in my 50s, I'm like, my gosh, uh, I'm very blessed with that, you know, hard love upbringing that I got. And um, when we when I moved for my job uh, to Japan uh, and my my I'll, I'll set the scene a little bit. My parents had lived in Japan. So when I was an expat child. I grew up in Japan, uh, so he was very attuned to the culture, etc. Very successful uh, businessman himself, um, and he gave me a book to read, 
and it was about the samurai way. And we all know that a lot of the way leadership ways go back to the Japanese way of, of doing and thinking. Um, but he put a card in it and he wrote with his lovely handwriting to me, very old fashioned with the date and the place. And, um, and he wrote to me, he said, be as bamboo, bend, but do not break. And it took me a while. I thought, oh, that's a very nice saying, la-di-da. Uh, and only when I was in Japan for maybe two years, I really understood what he was trying to tell me. And the other thing, the other value that was very, is very uh, strong for me is my mother's side where, you know, she really pushed on being a well, uh, how do you say that? A, a, a well, being a good person, um, well-mannered person. And also, I am, a, I am a girl, being a very well-mannered lady. And also, you know, when you're young, you're like, what does that matter? But I think it, it served me well. And together, it was always be humble and show respect. And that framework for me has served me very, very, very well, because it doesn't matter if, and I've had the amazing opportunity throughout my career to speak with ministers and with prime ministers and with mayors and with high commissioners. I never knew the difference, but working for an Australian company, you find out what high commissions mean and ambassadors um, uh, and even the royal family in Japan, which is uh, an experience in itself. That, But also if you work with, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if it's the janitor or the tea ladies as we have here, you always know how to set yourself. You always know how to behave yourself. And it's something that you don't ever have to work about. And it served me well because going back to where I started off, being personable is so important. It is like it is it's your brand is who you are. And I know it sounds stupid to call it a brand, but at the end of the day, we're all a brand. And I've seen so many CEOs that that are off brand. You know, they they give this amazing speech and it's all about people and then they go off stage and then they're that control and command. People get nervous when you're not on brand. You could, you know, I'd rather say be be the control and command person 24 seven, then at least people know what to expect and it will work. But this whole, oh, I'm trying to be authentic now. It's just, it's not working. But anyway, that's- uh, No, no, it, it's what you've just said is supremely important. And, and it's triggered in me, uh, be as bamboo, uh, bend, don't break, love that one. And, yeah. uh, and humble and show respect. I, I think particularly of a couple of people when I was a managing director, that I actually removed from the organization and they couldn't understand it. And I said, one of the, again, there are a number of examples of why it was not a right fit. And I wanted them to find their happiness elsewhere. Okay. Cause it wasn't the right fit in, in, in my team. Uh, and one of the things I said, the way you are with the lady on reception versus how you are with the CEO when you meet them tells me a lot, you know, I, I can't hear what you're saying because of the way you're behaving yeah. and and the fact that they were just horrible to the lady on the front desk who hadn't they thought no influence on their career at all and their chance of promotion and more money but the ceo was very important to them so there was lots of sucking up going on i just yeah. said that's so inauthentic in an organization where we are coaches to ceos and leaders we've got to role model it ourselves and i've made many mistakes constantly learning iterating, as you say, improve and learning from other people. And I do love the idea of 
what you learned from your parents. I use this analogy here, if I bring a little prop on, of, of a map here and, yeah. and, a, and the compass of your values with your true north, your, your magnetic north, that, that your parents gave you a map and they said, this is our values. This is how we are in a Dutch family and the way we treat other people from different nations and we're respectful of them and we learn from them and their culture. And, and, and that served you very well for many years, but yet you've added things to the map which weren't there before. And so it's out of date and you have to change it. So we, yeah. I think some people take the map and they go, this is the truth. You know, I am a Hindu or I am you know, Christian. So this is the way. But, you know, there's other things on there, too. You mean there's other people with different values? And, and I think personalizing your map and making it relevant and timely for the world you're in at the time you're in, but yet still having those values that you were brought up with. So you're not just going anywhere with any values like Trump and Boris, but you, you actually can be trusted to be one thing on stage, as you were saying. And when you go into the back, the way, and this is where someone like General the Lord Danner was so like that, how he was with people up front and how he was talking to more junior people. They loved him and they'd follow him anywhere and still do because he was very authentic. Hey, look, this is a great conversation. We, we're certainly not going according to any plan, but it's just it's just great because you've got some real life examples. Let's go on to the, the next one. Um, happiest moments, uh, proudest moment, maybe, and, and a darkest moment. Uh, and, and briefly work on those and, and, and personal life. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's the tough one, right? Um, um, happiest moments. I'm happy when I'm when I'm with my husband, when I'm with my friends, I'm not somebody that has like a thousand friends or a hundred. I've got five, actually five, uh, five best girlfriends. We have a very small family. So I'm very close to that when I can just enjoy what I'm doing. So those are my happiest moments. I love being in nature. Uh, I'm not, I'm not a sporty type at all, uh, which is also weird. All these, all these execs that you, they run in the morning and they do meditation and I don't do, I don't do anything. It's not good for the calories, but okay. I've given up on that. Um, uh, so just reflect, having time to reflect and, and be close with people that, that are fun to be with, that respect me, I respect them. And, and that we have some fun together. Those are my happiest moments, happiest moments work-wise Gosh, it's been a bumpy ride. It's been an interesting ride. I think I'm I'm happy when when I achieve the goals. I'm I'm also very ambitious. Otherwise, you wouldn't you know probably be where you are. Uh, I always want to win. Um, so, but I always want to win with people smiling, right? So I always say, when do you when do you think you won? It's not when I hit the EBITDA or the target, which obviously you have to do. I work for an American company. There's no getting away from that. But I'm only happy if we do it and we've had fun together. You know, if everyone's just, oh, like this was horrendous. That's no fun for me. So I guess that's that's very, those are happy, happy, happy moments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the darkest? And, sorry? And the darkest? Oh, the darkest. Ah, I don't like going there, but okay, here you go. I promised you I would. Uh, the darkest moments, I'll, I'll I'll mention too, because they have shaped me. That's the nice thing about, or the weird thing about the Homo sapiens as a as a as a species. We become better people through the dark sides. I always think, why is that such a flaw? I mean, why aren't we just beautiful people if we don't have to go through the dark side? But we do. Uh, it makes you a better person. Um, the first one, it's a long time ago, and uh, 
unfortunately, Sheryl Sandberg with her book, Lean In, <laughs> hadn't been written yet. So I guess my first marriage was not a very good, not a very successful one. I hadn't read the book that it would be good to have someone next to you that will lean in. And I don't think my ex read the book that it would be helpful to, for him to lean in. So that didn't work out. Okay, so it is what it is. Uh, you move on. Um, I think a more darker, darker period for me was the fact that um, I spent 10 years in and out of hospitals trying to have children. Uh, it is what it is. Uh, the doctors couldn't couldn't solve it. So there you are. And it it does. You know, I always say, hey, you don't don't talk to me about resilience. You got to be resilient if you go through that. I think everyone who treat has to work through something that has to do with your uh, personal health is 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 uh, is a challenge. But the more complicated thing about that was besides the disappointment that you have to you got to be pretty agile and flexible to restructure your life. I was born and raised and, you know, four kids, a house, the Volvo. That was my idea of life. Um, and yeah, the career part was, I don't know, probably somewhere in that mix, but in that order. And when that falls through, yeah, you can't just sit by and go, okay, well, that's it. If life gives you lemons... Yeah, it's a famous one. You make lemonades. But in the beginning, the lemonade is still a bit sour. And I think life teaches you, teaches you how to add more sugar over the years. And then finally, the lemonade tastes nice. And you get to a point where you're okay with what, what, you know, what cards that life has treated you. And you meet, you see that with a lot of people who have dealt with partners that have, you know, or you get sick, or there's a whole lot of mess out there. And again, you know, you got to realize we're all humans and it's nice what you see, what you get back when you share these stories. Mm. I never shared them in the beginning. Everyone always thought I was just a career woman, not wanting to have children. And once I was old enough to be able to share that story, I thought it was actually endearing the reactions you got and the connection you get with people. And you read that about people who go through horrible sicknesses like cancer, etc. You connect. Yeah. Uh, well, look, firstly, I'm really sorry for for what you you went through on both those, and uh, I too um, I had a first marriage which I I got wrong. You know, um, both sides were to blame, but I you know I, I had my big part to play, um, and now I've remarried like you and blissfully happy, and I found my my soulmate. You sort of almost like you, you get a second chance at life, really. But but um, the whole thing about the mindset that we think this is how my life's going to be. I'm going to have you know four kids and the Volvo, and and you couldn't. I'm really sorry for that. However, what's so interesting? Uh, I've been thrown a number of curveballs, which I won't go into because this is about you, but not about me. And when things didn't work out as I thought, or tragedy happens, I found the old Stoic philosophy, even though I had a Christian upbringing and Quaker as well. The, the, the Stoic philosophy of Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus and Seneca of you, you control the controllables. You can control your thoughts and your actions. You can't control what happens to you in life, what happens to your body. And this is where Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. He goes, the Nazis were experimenting on my body, but I, the only thing I could control is my thoughts and my actions. But they were doing horrible things to my body. And your body will let you down. I've been seriously ill last year, was in utter agony and in hospital uh, i'm i'm you know better now but but i had no control over that and and so i i do think it's great when inspiring leaders like you maya 
um, share that you haven't had this gilded path and it's all been so easy for you. And, you know, I chose these things. No, life threw some curveballs at you. And it's not the fact you have the problem. It's how you respond to it, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think, and, and that's, like I said, that's what makes us, I think, rounder, rounder people. Uh, and unfortunately, like I said, it's a flaw in, in, in the way of the homo sapiens. It also makes us better people because you've had, you've been forced to think about what's relevant and what's important in life. Uh, and actually you can live without the Volvo um, because you work with different ways, you know, like uh, you 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 work on an extended family. So that's why my friends, as I said at the beginning, I don't have a hundred friends. I've got five. And for me, that's my extended family. That's my Volvo filled with with uh, not kids, but l large people. Uh, and it is humbling how that how that can uh, not humbling, endearing how that works out. Um but yeah, it, it builds a lot of grit. I think that's another word that you can use. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I it's taken me some time, 56, 57 in October. Um, it's brought me a lot, but it took me quite a few years before I could say that out loud. I, I think so. And it, it's uh, situations that happen to us, you know, will make us upset. And, and things that happen, whether people who are close to us who've been killed or died, um, yeah. as, as has happened with me it's just you can't bring them back you can't change how it is but it doesn't take away that it's still it's still painful it's still difficult um it talk... does help though if you have uh is it a role model i don't know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if you have someone uh, i always take great great learnings from my grandmother you can do the math in the netherlands second world war wasn't very favorable for her it ended miserably uh long story i won't go there but if someone got lemons my gosh you got a whole tree full and if someone was amazing at making lemonade it was my grandmother's and this is where today yes as leaders we can't imagine what it was like and we start complaining about first world problems you know this train's you know five minutes late how dare it be five minutes late or um you know i i have got children i've got four two of my own and two stepchildren and they're in there 30s to their 26 year 27 year old um and they've got partners and things and their generation it's very interesting how their conversations you know they want experiences in life because they know they can't have some of the wealth that their parents have had it's a different world but but often there's a there's a sense of entitlement that didn't come from my mother who grew up in in the war and all the experiences she had and uh grandfather killed when the airplane plied into the side of a hill and you know various other people all killed and 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 they were very grateful and they still did things like rationing and uh you know make do mend do without but now we want it all and we want it now yeah. and uh, and i think that story was was just so harrowing and just so but also inspiring that that she found a way through and lots of lessons for you and role model for you. Lots of lessons, but I, I take it into stride because on one hand side, I agree with you. Everyone's entitled, but I'm also from an entitled uh, generation born in the sixties. I mean, we had everything, you know, there's, there's nothing that we can complain about. We think the next generation is even more entitled, but all right, let's uh, every generation complains about the next, but I do sometimes get cross when, 
Um, and we see that we were talking about that when cultures mix, right? So Western culture comes to Asia or comes to Eastern Europe and is annoyed with the way uh, Eastern Europeans do their job. I worked in uh, Czech Republic. Uh, I was responsible for Eastern Europe. So I, uh, it was a fascinating time. And I would sometimes say, but everyone that is 40 years and older grew up in the communism. communism. So how can you expect a person that has had that upbringing and that schooling and that way of working to all of a sudden be that has the same flexibility as a Western leader? You're you're making a, a, a an unfair comparison. I can get very uh, passionate about that. And that's a nice way of saying it. And it's the same when you speak to people here that grew up in Vietnam. That's not so long ago. I'm older. You will remember the Vietnam War. Um if you go through different things, you cannot be held to the same bar. And who says that our way or our way, the Western way of doing things is better? Mm. Who says that that is better? You, but you do have to have compassion for other ways of thinking, especially if you take the effort of looking into people's history. And sometimes a country's history will help. So uh, I always say, go read a book about the country that you've just moved to instead of just having your gin and tonics and enjoying the palm trees, um, because it's not you're not being realistic and you're not being fair. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a fascinating whole area of uh, uh, perspective and understanding others. And, you know, uh, maybe even in my own way at times, partly just then, but it generally, I can be too judgmental about people who are different. Uh, I think I'm not, but I, I am, even in some of the comments I might make. And also attached to how things should have been. This, this non-judgment and non-attachment are two very Eastern philosophies, which as I do listen to various Tibetan masters or do a bit of mindfulness or whatever it is, one of the big things is about letting go and not being so attached to something, and certainly not judging others. And, and I've uh, enjoyed reading Ray Dalio's book called Principles of a Changing World Order, which is well worth reading. And of course, he's a, a financier um, with Bridgewater Associates, where he's made, he's a, a billionaire. But he, of course, sees the the, the clash of, of two cultures, of the Chinese and the American cultures clashing. We've always been brought up on the American way is the right way. Well, who's saying it is? You know, like, and and the, the reserve currency won't be American anymore. It was to begin with, as we discussed, Dutch, then it was British. Now it's American, but it's going to turn and the reserve currency will be Chinese. And the Chinese hold a lot of debt for America. So there's a real problem brewing in your region. And I think, sadly, in my lifetime, we'll probably see another world war. Uh, it's going on at the moment economically. Um, it's going on in cyber world. Um, it's going on in all sorts of different ways. It's just called what the Russians call hybrid warfare. It's just yeah. they find different ways of doing it. I don't know. What's your view on the, the East versus West and what we can learn from uh, the, the, the regions that you're in now? Because I'm sure there's a lot we can learn. That's a complicated question i don't know if i can answer it like that we can learn a lot from each other but i like the way that you just framed it the the way that we from the west have been framed since i think since probably before but let's take 45 onwards 
the American way is the right way. They are the good people. That that's the way that it should be done, and everything is is uh, held against that. If you live here, you have a different framework. So in Asia, China is not per se seen as a horrible uh, villain as it is portrayed in 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 the West, at least if you read the newspapers. Uh, and I think that needs a little bit of counterbalancing. Now, I'm not stating that China is not. I'm, I'm, I'm staying away from that. But I do think that we need to keep an open mind. It's almost like we're going back to the Cold War where mm. all of a sudden Russia is bad again and China is bad again. I thought we'd moved on from that, but it's like we're going backwards. And and uh, we we ended, or the world ended the Cold War because there was an open way of communicating with each other. There was Gorbachev, there was, you know, there were people that were willing to see maybe they're not as bad as we think or not the villain, et cetera. It's very, it's 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 hard. Um, yeah, I don't think I answered your question. No, but... you, you did. And, and I, I've really enjoyed this session. We're, we're gonna be finishing in about five minutes. Uh, can you imagine? Um, but I just sort of, because we've had such a wide ranging conversation based on your own experience as a leader, I've just thrown the other things to the wall for for uh, because I want to have this authentic conversation. You said about you know inspiring leaders are authentic, they're real, uh, yeah. and that humility and humanity. And we've had some quite deep uh, conversations, but also when we were chatting before, we had a good laugh as well. Uh, let's perhaps just in the last uh, period of time end with uh, executive teams. Then your favorite book, then the two minute top tip. Uh, e executive teams, you you've created a lot of executive teams you've inherited a lot of executive teams so it's hard when you get somebody else's team and they go i've chosen these people and they're fantastic and you get there and you go okay they wouldn't be the people i would choose but i suppose i've got them what do i do with them who can i keep who's going to be you know who's, who's gone rotten and is, is is spoiling the fruit bowl by just dissolving and being toxic um what, what's your experience on how you you take on somebody else's team uh, make it your own and make it high performing and dealing with when there are people whose behavior is to some people toxic to other people they're just misunderstood what well, perhaps just share a bit about teams and what what you've done to make them high performing i find that the hardest the hardest thing in in stepping into a new role and i've done it now a few times and the word toxic right even it even sounds horrible um, and there's this there was this whole thing about, you know, uh, getting the right people on the right bus. And if they're not the right people, throw them off the bus. That was the best way to do it. I don't know. I'm still I'm still on the fence between what you should do. Keep the team and try and make it better and improve it, which will take more time. But then you've got a strong foundation or come in, set the tone, kick out, you know, kick out the toxic or kick out the underperformers they don't even have to be toxic and move on i haven't cracked that now if you have the the right answer for that uh then then i think you could make a million bucks on 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 leadership books because i i haven't i've seen both styles um and both of them i think have pros and cons i've kind of always tended towards keep the team in place uh for continuity um, um, has it always been a success? No, not really. On really toxic, oh, I've been through toxic 360 degrees. I've had 
to lead a, 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 a team where there were was really toxicity. Is that English? I have no idea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've been in a team where we as a leadership team were completely toxic with each other. And I've had a toxic relationship with my uh, with my uh, boss, if you want to call it that director, boss, manager, leader. Um, and I never knew what to do. And I went to and I can recommend this to everybody. Uh, to INSEAD, you don't have to go to INSEAD, you can go to Harvard, you can go to wherever. It's the advanced management program. It's a whole month internal, which is good. You, you're you taken out of your role um, and you just sit there with like-minded people. That's the good part about it. With all senior leaders, we're all struggling with the same thing. So not mid-level, but really you, you're there, you've accomplished it, but now how did they get to the next level of what you want to achieve? And then uh, you get a coach and the coach... <laughs> Um, said to me, get out. If you are in a toxic environment and you can't do anything about it, get out. And I thought that was horrendous. I said, but that means I need to leave the company or, 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 uh, and she said, yeah, but you're going to have to get out. It was the wisest thing she said to me because there's no way you're going to solve it. Then again, if you're the leader and you've got the toxic situation, probably also get rid of the toxic thing, people. Mm. Yeah. It's not fun to do, but you're never going to solve it. No, and I think very insightful comments, both on the balance of the continuity. Uh, there's, there is there is great healthiness about bringing people up through your organization, promoting them into roles rather than always bringing out externals. But there is also time when you need fresh blood and you need new ideas and you need uh, you know, and organizations always had the same people like Unilever who they bring up from the bottom or the British yeah. Army. We were always trained from, you know, second lieutenant all the way up to be a general. It's hard to parachute someone in as a colonel who's never had that kind of experience. So there's certain things where it wouldn't work. But I, I, I have found and I have coached like you on a number of occasions to CEOs that I've been coaching that somebody they have is so toxic, even though they're making a lot of money for them, that they have to go because it's completely eroding the culture. They're saying one thing, but everybody's going, but you're letting this man get away with behaving completely unscrupulously and bullying people. Why? why how do you let that go on? You're, you're being blind to that. And so when they've done it, everybody's gone, what a relief. Thank goodness you've done this. And they've gone, but we're going to lose lots of money. No, actually, they make more money because they've been suppressing all the others. It's all been about them and their ego. And look at me and I'm I'm great. Uh, and also I have like like your coach at INSEAD said, it's a great, great program. I did my uh, program at Harvard, but INSEAD would be a place I'd love to go as well. Um, it, it, as I've said to a number of people, you need to leave the organization. You cannot, the only, like with, the only thing you can change is your own thoughts and your own actions. You can't change your boss. If your boss is toxic, you won't by you know sucking up to them more, make them nicer people. They'll just bully you more, but like Putin would do. How do you get on with Putin? You know, what do you do? Well, actually, you have to you have to get away from them or get them out of the organization or whatever it is. You're not going to make them nice people overnight. They are by nature um driven by certain darker forces, the old dark triad of um, narcissism, psychopathy and uh, Machiavellian traits. And I'm afraid there's there's too many of them around and they're attracted to power and, and, and high status positions. So many people are working from them. You have to emigrate to avoid them, you know, literally. Yeah. Don't stay there. It's really unhealthy. And, and, and I uh, worked for, for somebody who was very 
uh, powerful, very influential, but also toxic. And it took its toll on me. I, I did a year, but I thank God that was all I had to do. Um, but looking back, it was it was a survival thing. And so I think you're you're spot on there. Um, uh, your favorite book on leadership would be an interesting one. What would you pick on that? Yeah, I, 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 I'm going to put on my glasses because I don't want to say I don't want to say the, the, the title wrong. I'm going to pick two. Okay. If you don't mind. Yeah, I please do. I cannot stay away working for Red Hat that we've got um, Jim Whitehurst, who was the previous uh, CEO. Um, and before that, he was the COO of Delta. He really brought the company to exponential growth. And he wrote a book on, you know, we are open source and then the open organization, which is all, and we're talking about a lot about it now because it's it's really ingrained in tech companies, open organization built on meritocracy, which was so cool when this was a startup and it went through, you know, all these phases, freedom, courage, commitment, and accountability. Mm. And it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing book. I can, uh, uh, everyone, go read it. But it's interesting to have a company that truly is built on meritocracy. There's no hierarchy. Yeah, you've got levels and spans. but And then freedom. There's as much freedom as you want, but there's also accountability, which means there is no control and command. Uh, in a way, everyone can choose their own adventure, but you got to be accountable for what you do. And those two are so balanced. It's, a, it's an amazing read. Another book from a fellow Dutchman, which s- intrigues me, is a gentleman called Frank Slotman. Um, it's called Amp It Up, and it is all about leading for hypergrowth. So what is this gentleman famous for? He was uh, uh, the CEO of Data Domain. A lot of people won't know it. It was bought by EMC, later Dell. He was the large, he did the big growth of ServiceNow. And he did the largest IPO in software business of a company called Snowflake, which got a lot of news. Um, And he left the Netherlands when he was 25 and then went to the US. So what I liked reading about it was he's got this Dutch directness. And then it is literally amplified because he added the American big, you know, dream big, be bold. uh, And the combination is almost lethal. But, you know, he's got great success. Um, And it is all about raising the bar, raising your standards. How do you literally bring a company that is small into hyper growth? And we're talking 40, 50 percent growth, which if you come from you know, older companies, brick and mortar, you've never even heard of that, but it does exist. Um, And there are things I disagree with. There are things I agree with. We could probably spend a whole podcast on that, but it it is the book now being read by everyone in tech. It's fascinating, fascinating. That is, well, as I work with a lot of tech companies, I I will be passing on to the other CEOs, your recommendation. So amp it up and the open organization, was I right in hearing that? Correct. Yeah, great. Well, I've, I've highlighted them. I've written them down and I will, as a dyslexia, I'll be li- hopefully listening to them if they if they've got a, um, an audible version of that. Yeah, they do. The, the yeah. Amp It Up has, a, has an audio one. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll be listening to that in the next uh, couple of weeks. Thank you. Um, so would you end with your two minute top leadership tip? And as this is a standalone in its own right, just introduce yourself, say the role you have and the organization you work for, and then give us your top tip. So over to you. All right. Hi, my name is Mariette, Mariette Andres. I am leading the APAC region for Red Hat, and these are my top tips. 
And um, there's always three because you always need three. So what do CEOs need? They need to be adaptive. So never stop learning, adapt in the present and evolve for the future. They need to be relational. Leaders develop good leaders, not good followers. I think that is also something that is a very important. And the last one that is, I think, the most important one, because the other ones other people have said, self-awareness. And I would call it out, guys and girls, CEOs, lighten up. Take your mission serious. Take your goal serious. But please don't take yourself too serious. Mm -hmm. Hard enough as it is. Enjoy what you're doing. It'll spread across your company and you will see, you know, your employee scores go through the roof. You'll also enjoy life a lot better. Please lighten up. Wow, that is fantastic. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure having, just stay on when we finish recording, but it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the series. And I think it's the first time I've, of 230 episodes, I've completely thrown all out the window and just gone with these fascinating topics that you brought up, which is, which is why you are an inspiring leader, but also you've been very authentic and I thank you for that. And we've all benefited. So thank you for being on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. It was a pleasure. The time literally flew by. So thank you for that. <laughs> it did. Thanks. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.